Okay, everybody, it's about time for us to get started. Appreciate your attendance this evening. We are in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 7, which is about one, maybe two verses. I think one verse than where we left off. Daniel chapter 7, verse number 7. So, uh, obviously, we're at the very beginning of the chapter, but all, all we have covered thus far is this beginning of another vision that Daniel uh, has had. And it, has, it began with him seeing um, kind of like a, a, a water storm he's on the sea, and it stirs up four beasts, uh, the first three of which, as we broke them down in the beginning part of the chapter, we pretty quickly identified them as pointing to uh, Babylon and Medo-Persia and uh, Greece or Macedonia, leading into the fourth one obviously being Rome, if you follow that you know, pattern, which was already established for us in Daniel chapter 2. So as we go into verse 7, even though I know we ended like in verse 8, but last week we're going to start at verse 7 to pick up where we left off, basically. So look at verse number 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, and devoured and broken pieces, and it stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Probably the two most um, key takeaways from verse number 7. First is its teeth of iron, which again points to it being Rome, because that correlates to the Daniel 2 prophecy and how those things overlap. Intentionally so, as I said last week, God is not trying to confuse us. The simplest explanation is usually the correct one in these sort of things. That's the one we talked about in the previous verses. They were all given some kind of a, a comparative. You know, this one's like an eagle, or it was like a bear, and like a lion, or something like that. This one, you don't get a like a. Uh, in fact, what you get is it's diverse from all the other ones. In other words, it was so different, I couldn't give you a word to compare it to. But here's, here's, some, here's some key thoughts. Here's some images that stick out. You know, it's got these nasty, big, pointy teeth. And it it's stomps on its enemy and it rips it to shreds. And it's got this mangled carcass in its mouth. And it's holding down the, the paw, its paw against, or whatever it has, claw, paw, whatever, um, against its, its enemy that it has vanquished. So it's this brutal, conquering, conquesting kind of um, creature. <clears throat> but its most distinguishing characteristic is that it has ten horns. You can have antlers that have you know multiple points but that's just two if you want to call them horns they're not but similar cows typically two horns rams two horns we're going to get to a ram very particularly in the next chapter but here 10 horns and it's hard even to kind of fathom how that would all be arranged and what it would look like and it's not even that it has more than 10 we're going to have an 11th one in a minute but one thing we know as we study this in the context of apocalyptic literature which is what you call this it's it's not just a vision as clear as day. It's written in this kind of, and it was seen in this kind of surreal, heightened imagery kind of style where the things you see are representational of other things. So when you see horns, horns on an animal designates power. Horns designates authority, power, domination, and so forth. Well, here it has ten horns. Now, I've said many times, this is what I said at the end of last week, be very, very careful, almost to the point of never do it. But I won't say that. I'll say almost. Be very careful when you see a number or a figure or a date and time in an apocalyptic vision style language. Be careful to not to read it as a literal thing. If in a vision 10 years pass, that does not mean whatever the vision is talking about will take 10 years to finish. 
if you're told in an apocalyptic language, you only got to deal with this for a week and a half, you think, oh, well, a week and a half, I can handle that. And a week and a half in reality might be 75 years. It's just to God, it's called that because he means something when he says a week and a half. He means something when he says 10 days. He means something when he says 3.5 periods of time. He means it has an incompletion sense to it. It doesn't have a wholeness to it. It'll end when I say it'll end, that sort of thing. So you got to pick up on those clues and read all these different things. And, and honestly, you've got to read the whole, all kinds of apocalyptic language to find the commonalities before you can even start piecing them together. So here you have 10. So forget everything I just said about not taking numbers literally because you got 10. There's 10. And the reason why it's an exception that proves the rule is that in this case, the, the 10 horns are going to be contrasted in a couple of verses, if not the next verse, I can't remember, by one other horn. In other words, your attention is being drawn and you're being asked to count the horns up and then see a separate horn that is different from them. So it's not like 10 is as a whole number that has a meaning. It's rather 10 individual elements as part of the whole image of this beast. So that's the distinction, the difference between the way you usually do numbers and the way they must be done here. So if this fourth beast, and it seems to be, is Rome, and you have Rome with ten horns, and horns are a symbol of power, then what, what is the symbol of power of the Roman Empire? Is it the people? Do the people have power in the Roman Empire? The people used to have power in Rome when it was a republic, but what is the, in the Roman Empire? Who has the power in an empire? Yeah, you just changed one syllable. The emperor who has the power in an empire. So who, is the, who are the symbols of power? Ten of them are identified for us, not identified by name, but by number in this vision. You've got ten emperors. Now, there are 10, 11, 12 names here, and that's where we left off last week because we're not entirely sure where it begins. It would have been really great if God had given us you know, a cheat sheet to go through this. Otherwise, oh, you wouldn't need me teaching you. But it'd be great if he gave us the help, but he didn't, so we got to kind of figure this stuff out. Although I will say, Spoiler in chapter 8. Thankfully, there's going to come a moment when Daniel's just doing this like a night, a whole night, and you're going to have God say, Gabriel, go tell him what the vision means. I would love that if I could have that just on speed dial, but we don't get that in chapter 7. So we got to work with, work with it here. Here's what we have. All right, if you start with what is considered like the beginning of the Roman Empire, you're going to start with one of two characters, either Pompey or Julius. Julius is very famous, but Pompey's not bad either. You can start with them. Let's say we start with Pompey and we start counting down. Pompey, Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Claudia, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellius. There's 10. All right? Forget these two for a second. If we start there, there's 10. If we were to start with Julius, then the 10th one would be Vespasian. And we don't know which one we're starting with, but it matters because we don't stop with 10. Look at the next verse. Verse number 8. I consider the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn. Does everybody's Bible call it a little horn? A little one. Yes. Okay. Little has the connotation of, well, small. Obviously, that's not a connotation. That's just another meaning of the word. But it carries the idea when you call something little as less important or less in stature. But I'll just plug, plant a seat here. And later in this chapter, this same little horn is going to be called great in stature. Okay? So... Don't think little and think unimportant. Don't think little and mean not significant. Don't think little and mean didn't make a big impact because that's not the case. So I say all that to say this. When you count these up and you think, all right, if I start with Pompey and I get to 10, I end with Vitellius. 
that means the little horn that came next would be Vespasian. But if I know my Roman Empire history, Vespasian was a huge, influential, in all the worst ways, usually, emperor. Hardly should he be called a little horn. If you just have that descriptor and you have that in your mind, what you think when you hear little. But later in this very chapter, that little horn is going to be called a horn of great stature. So I don't think we should read too much into the visual that he's getting in his apocalyptic language. Another distinct separate horn. And even as I said last week, I think the word little doesn't even have to mean little, like in comparison. It could just mean in its location. Like if you have, and again, we don't even know what this thing is, but let's say it's, you know, some kind of a, you know, a cow with horns. Here's this, you know, there, there's a cow. But you add, you add more horns and you get 10 of them. Well, let's say there's another horn that pops up right there. It's below all the other ones. Well, that could be translated as little just because of its location. Just the way translations work, it could be just, just that he's looking at it and he was describing it another way. And we don't even know what this thing looks like. I mean, that's a pretty good cow in about two seconds of drawing. We don't know what he's seeing, but little doesn't have to mean little. So if it is Vespasian, certainly he fits the mold based on what we're going to be talking about. Because look at what else he says in the verse. Look at verse number eight again. I consider these horns, and there came up from among them a little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. So I saw all these, and I keep pointing at these names, because we're presuming, as you have to do when you study apocalyptic literature, you have to make a guess and hope it works. If not, you back up. So he's looking at these horns, and he sees this other horn that followed after three others that he, that he deems noteworthy. And he says, these three that came before were plucked up by the roots. Okay, now, if you wanted to be the person who says the little horn is Titus, because you should really start with Julius. You start with Julius because Julius was the real first emperor. He was a member of the first triumvirate. We talked about this last week, and he crossed the Rubicon, and he became the emperor. So he, he was, you know, to that unquestioned supreme authority, Julius. So he's number one, you say, which means... 10 is Vespasian, and the little horn is Titus, and that fits, they'll say, because Titus persecuted the people of Jerusalem. He burned Jerusalem down, ransacked the city in the year 70. So rightly could he be called this agitative horn that we're going to read about later in the chapter. But it works better if you're looking at it historically, if you make it Vespasian, or excuse me, if you make Vitalius the, the, here who has the little horn, because the three that came before Galva, Otho, and Vitalius. Vespasian, the one, the three that came before. All right. Let's just presume here's your, here's your 11th horn. All right, here's your 10th. You know, there's one through 10. And then here's this little horn. And before the little horn were three. They were ripped up from the roots. Now, if you study the history of the Roman Empire, you have this pretty solid, unbroken line of emperors until you get to Nero. Not a great fellow, that Nero. Nero was deposed by Galva. Ransacked, overthrown, defeated. Took off to the east with his tail between the legs. But Galba, he didn't, his dynasty didn't last because he was deposed. He was overthrown by Otho. He too was overthrown by Vitalius. What are you seeing here but horns being ripped up by the roots? Not able to take root, not able to expand and continue a dynasty. Instead, this one is defeated by this one is defeated by this one. So if I'm looking at it from the perspective of an animal with features, I could see... All of these horns representing the authority of the kinghood of, of Rome, whether they're called kings or Caesars or Kaisers, it's all the same thing. Power, horn, power. 
And here is this little horn that came after this period of upheaval and turmoil where kings are coming and being ripped up left and right. So that fits chronologically and historically to think it's Vespasian. I say all that to say this. You can make a pretty good case for the little horn being Titus. And you can make a pretty solid case for Vespasian being the little horn. But as we're going to continue through the chapter, both are going to end in the same place. Okay? In other words, whatever position you want to take, we're probably going to end up agreeing by the time we get to the end of the chapter. And that happens all the time in apocalyptic literature. And even just in Bible study in general. Well, not when you get too deep into it, but Old Testament vision kind of stuff. I mean, you'll have these discrepancies, these disagreements about the periphery. But as you keep studying, God usually is good about giving the conclusion. And we can usually, if we open our brains and turn off our biases, agree on the conclusion. Which means the arguments we'll have before we get to the conclusion are just a cow's opinion. They're just a moot point, right? So it doesn't matter that we're disagreeing. Yet one of us is right or neither of us are. That's always true. And you like to be right. That's always fun. But if we're going to end up in the same place, you know, we're just splitting hairs. All right? So if you've ever had somebody or if you yourself have ever thought, Bible's too difficult to understand. There's all these different opinions. I don't know what to make sense of it. Probably true. There are a lot of different opinions. But more often than not, if you're looking at the Bible, the big picture stuff, the stuff that really matters, matters. The big picture of what Daniel 7 is about, I think we're going to be able to agree on. Whether we agree on who the little horn is, it's just, you know, how much sugar goes in your coffee. That's what we're talking about. Verse 9. I beheld till the thrones... Now, let me read you the King James Version. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. Beginning of the verse. I beheld till thrones were cast down. Does your Bible say something similar to that? Or is it... Huh? Christ. I watched till thrones were placed. Thrones placed, thrones placed. Nope. Does anybody else have cast down or anything so violent and negative as that? Okay, good. Because the King James got it badly wrong here. If you're reading it, it sounds like he's saying we're toppling kingdoms. We're knocking down thrones. But the literal translation is I was watching until there were thrones. And that could even be singular. Was put where it was supposed to go. Until it was set in its place. Is that what says placed? Place. That's the idea. I was watching until in the midst of all this scene, another thing happened. A throne was set where it needed to be. Now that's distinct from all of this going on. It's not a throne for one of these guys. It's not a throne being knocked down. It's a throne being placed where God wants it to be. Which is the theme of the whole thing. You have all these empires and turbulence and turmoil, but God is in control. He's going to place a throne. And look at the next clause. And the Ancient of Days did sit on this throne that is placed. Now tell me about the Ancient of Days. That's Daniel's pet phrase for God. He only uses it three times, but it's pretty exclusive to Daniel. It's like Isaiah calls God um, the Holy One of Israel. They have these little pet phrases they give to God. Daniel's is the Ancient of Days. All right? Well, tell me about it. What does it look like? Well, its clothing is as white as snow, indicating purity. No, no spot or blemish or imperfection to be found. The hair of his head was like pure wool. Again, like a perfect sheep's uh, coat. White, pure, no imperfections. His throne was like a fiery flame and his wheels like burning fire. Where did his wheels come from? What kind of throne are we talking about here? Any speculation before I tell you what I think? 
Hmm? Somebody whispered it. You was it you stealing what she said? Who said? Somebody said. It's Charles is right. Yeah, chariot. Yeah. A, a place for the king to sit that's mobile when he's going off to conquer, when he's going off to make war, is his chariot. It's, it's his seat of power, but on the move. And here, um, I want to say Ezekiel, he has a chariot too, uh, or he sees one. Daniel depicts Jesus, God, I should say, he depicts God, described in these um, pure, uh, perfect terms, but he's sitting on a chariot that is blazing, that is on fire. Why? Because judgment is depicted as fire, and he'll talk about that more later. Um, uh, purification is depicted in terms of fire, and fire in terms of purification. He is himself purified, and he's going off to purify. Uh, how, how does God purify in war? By defeating enemies and by saving souls, depending on which side you're on. So keep going. He's got this flaming chariot on which he rides, off to war. But it's a spiritual war, keep that in mind, verse 10. And a fiery stream issues and came forth from him, or from before him. This fiery, just beam of fire blasts out of his, his chariot. It's, it's the most psychedelic image you can imagine. And thousands, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. His judgment was set, and then books were opened. We'll get to the books in a second. Here's just a picture. Here is this perfectly described being. I mean, the description is great, Daniel, but I mean, he's perfect in the description. He's got white hair. He's got white garments. He's sitting on this flaming chariot. What does your Bible say? Again, mine says fiery stream issued forth. What does yours say? Just, yeah. He, he is, this is what he's doing. All right. And surrounding him is what? Thousand thousands? Ten thousand times ten thousand. Who do you think that is? He sees surrounding him. He's sitting on his throne and thousands are surrounding him. Who are the thousands? It's either angels or it's just his people. Because later we're going to talk about the saints. We don't know yet. It's very similar, this text, to, we already studied Revelation. Let me read to you Revelation 1.14. About Jesus, John says, His head and his hairs were white like wool and white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Not the exact same image. That's fine but the same elements used to describe him. The whiteness, the wool, again, same concept, and fire, purification, same idea. I think we all know who we're looking at here through the eyes of Daniel. Verse 11, I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spoke. Remember these guys, they're still, among them was a little horn where there were three horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things. So this thing has been speaking, and Daniel gets distracted because here comes God in all of his splendor and glory and fiery power. And he says, then I kept hearing this voice, verse 11, the voice of the great words, great not good, great isn't huge, that the horn was speaking. And I beheld all of this. I beheld this little horn, a symbol of power of this beast, an evil creature. I beheld this, and I beheld this fiery throne, and I was listening to this until the beast was slain. So you think, you think you're being built up to this big battle that's about to happen. You've got this big guy over in this corner, this demonic, monstrous-looking creature that's got ripping people in its iron teeth, and it's, it's stomping on its enemies, and it's huge. It's got all these horns. It's got all its power. And over here in this corner is God and his flaming chariot. And there was going to be a big fight. And before the bell even finishes ringing, battle's over. Because you can't fight God. He's just, he's just going to whip you. The beast is slain, just like that. And his body is destroyed and given to the burning flame. You said a river of fire is coming out of his chariot? 
issues forth. Just fire comes out of his chariot. And in that fire, after he defeats you, evil, he's going to burn you. Now you can apply that however you feel necessary. Verse 12. As concerning the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now let's make application. Well, let's try to wrap our heads around the, the meaning of the vision. So you have four beasts, the fourth of which was the most smacked down. Okay, It was completely defeated and tossed into the fire. But the other three are not described in that way. The other three, are their fates are given to you here in verse 12. They are defeated. Their dominion is taken away. But they will not be burnt in the fire. They will just live for a little bit longer, for a season and a time. Another one of those... <laughs> grab it again. Another one of those one and a half. A season and a time. Oh, I should be one and a half. I don't know why even around the board. Uh, a one and a half thing. In other words, an incomplete thing until God decides it's going to be done. That's the meaning of it. Okay? We're going to come back to that in other ways it's phrased later. But here's this idea that you have these various kingdoms that are going to be defeated. Their dominion taken away one by one, but they're going to have these lingering after effects. This echo of what they once were that's not going to be there for the fourth one. Now let's make the application. You have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Macedonia, Rome. Rome, completely smacked down, wiped out, obliterated, burned in the fire. Gone. But the ones before it, we just read in verse 12, they're going to be overthrown, but they're going to linger for a little while. Well, Babylon defeated by Medo-Persia. But Babylonian influence did linger. The structure of government was basically adopted by the Medes and the Persians. The Medo-Persians are going to be defeated by Alexander and Macedonian the Empire. But the Medo-Persian um, uh, influence is going to linger. When Macedonia is defeated by Rome, the Macedonian Greek influence is going to linger. I mean, so much so that everybody's still speaking the language by the time Rome is in power. I mean, you've got Latin over here, but everybody, Greek is just, it's the second language of everybody, if not the first. So the influence still lingers. But when Rome is destroyed, well, that's the thing. Rome doesn't get the honor of a big smacking down in world history. They just sort of fizzle and, and just kind of, you know, blah, and just die. You know, they get so big for their breaches, they just kind of explode and they split into two and the two split into four and it splits and splits and fractures and just goes all different directions. But Rome doesn't get this, Rome is this big powerful empire, then this bigger empire comes in and defeats them, and then we remember Rome because they left us the legacy of blank. Well, what did Rome leave? What's their legacy? Roads? That's it. And, and a half-finished wall in England. That's, that's their legacy. There's no, I mean, we know of them. We, we know their culture, but it, it, never, it never became engrafted into society after Rome was no longer Rome, right? So that's the distinction. Rome is defeated, but those other three, they're also defeated, but they will, they will linger. I, I, in fact, I think the, the prophecy would, would make more sense to our conventional way of thinking if it was reversed. These three are defeated, but they linger, linger, linger. But this one, smack down, tossed in the fire. End of story for them. Someone might ask, why we, what is the point of studying this? Um, if I'm a person in Babylon reading Daniel's text, I'm in exile, what does this do for me? And I think it's a reminder that, A, God is in control, and that no matter what happens, empires are going to rise and empires are going to fall. But Rome is going to rise, or before them, uh, Alexander, and before them, you know, Cyrus, and currently, you know, the Babylonian kings. 
They're going to rise not because they're so great, but because God chooses it. And they're going to fall not because they're so bad or weak or inefficient, but because God is design, designing the playbook and carrying it out according to his will to prepare and bring the world to the right point he wants it to be, in particular for the coming of Christ. But I say that, that's going to raise a question here in a second, because if we go to verse 13, the Christ king is about to sit on his throne and start reigning, and after he's reigning, now he's already come, so God has done all these things, he's raised up this evil empire, defeated this evil empire, and over and over he's done this, and these evil empires he's raised up, waiting for the coming Christ, he raises them up and they do wicked things, and the people say, okay, I get it. These wicked things are happening, but God has a plan. He's preparing for the Christ. Well, now Christ has come. Christ is here. Christ is reigning. And wicked things are still going to happen. And people are going to wonder, what's the deal, God? Because I thought this was all until Christ comes. But now we're into Christ, and we're still suffering and being punished. We'll get there. Verse 13. Before we read verse 13, somebody please jump forward about 400 pages. Somebody read Acts 1-9. Acts. Acts 1 verse 9. It's right after Acts 1 8. <laughs> Acts, Easy to find. Acts 1 verse 9. Yeah. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Uh, he, we're in the middle of the hit, so just a bunch of pronouns. Jesus. We're talking about Jesus, his ascension into heaven. So the apostles are there with Jesus. They're on the Mount of the Ascension. And Jesus gives some final words, which basically boil down to go hang out in Jerusalem. You're going to get power, and the church is going to begin. That's basically the, the, the final message. And then as they're listening to him talk, they're watching, and he's slowly ascending and going up and up and up and up until they can't see him anymore because he's just gone in the clouds. He just disappears into the clouds. And just as, as the angels are about to tell him, just as sure as he went up, so will he come back. But that's the ascension of Christ. That is the... Um, it's not the coronation of Jesus the King because they don't see it. You know, if a coronation is in the woods and no one's there to hear it, does it still make a sound? They're there, they can know it's going to happen, but they have no perspective of it because they're all the way down here and they're told, go get to work. Okay, well, I want to see that coronation. What's that look like? Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions. Now, hang on. Verses 1 through 12, the first vision, which had the four beasts and the smacking down and all that stuff. That's like heads. Now, this is tails. It's not this vision, and then what follows it is this vision. It's not, I'm going to smack down this fourth empire, which is Rome, and after Rome is defeated, then Jesus is going to reign. And that's the mistake that your premillennialist friends will make, and the people who don't know how to read apocalyptic writing. They think it's a linear, this thing follows, this thing follows, this thing. And so what they say is, this great empire is defeated, and when it's defeated, then Jesus will come back, and he will rule for a thousand years, blah, 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 bunch of nonsense. But that's not what you're getting here. You're getting a vision, and now you're getting another vision. And visions don't have to follow each other chronologically. Visions can, can tell the same time period from a different perspective. Visions can jump around in time. We're going to see that in the next chapter when, if you follow the timeline, like, like here's Babylon, all right? This is chapter 1. Uh, here's Jesus, all right? We know about him. And the prophecies of Daniel basically... Do one of these. So you got Babylon, then you got Medo-Persia, then you have Macedonia or Greece, and then you have Rome here, okay? So this is chapter 2, this is chapter um, 7, this is chapter 8. So if, you're, if you don't know how to read Daniel, if you don't know how to read apocalyptic visions, 
you might go through this and recognize this, okay, Rome is defeated. And then now we come to chapter 8, we have another vision, so that's post-Rome's defeat. But it's not. It's actually talking about something before Rome was defeated. It's just a different vision. You reset the board, we start over. So here at the beginning of chapter 7, we had a vision of these various kingdoms and what became of them. Defeated, 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 defeated. That's what became of them. But now we flip the coin over and we look at it from a different perspective. What are we looking at? Not the defeated kingdoms of the world, but the conquering king of heaven. Well, what gives Jesus the stature and the right to be the conquering king? Where is his authority? Well, let's see that. Verse 13. I saw another vision in the night. And behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him, the Son of Man, near before him, the Ancient of Days. So now, what the apostles saw this away, Daniel gets to see this away. They saw him go up into the clouds, and Daniel says, I saw him come from the clouds and be escorted to God, be escorted to the Father. Again, verse 13. One like the Son of Man come with the clouds of heaven, come to the Ancient of Days. Again, Father, Jehovah. And they, who's they? The host of the angels surrounding the Father brought him to him. In verse 14, there was given to him, the Son of Man, dominion and glory and a kingdom to the point that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom shall not be destroyed. Jesus, we'll call him that because that's how we know him, is given three things by the Ancient of Days. Three things that in the context of Daniel give him the authority not only to defeat these kingdoms, but replace these kingdoms with his one kingdom. This one doesn't last forever. This one doesn't last forever. This one doesn't last forever. But I'll replace it with one that will last forever. There is given him dominion, the authority of his rule, because he is the God-man. He has divine power over men. He was given glory, the worthiness of his rule. We esteem him. We lift him up. We praise him. Why? Because this whole thing came about because he died for us. Because he took on the cross, he got what we deserved so that we could get what he deserved. He was given dominion, authority of his rule. He was given glory, worthiness of his rule. He was given a kingdom, the government of his rule. He is not just a guy who died and rose just to set an example. He is not just a, a, a God-man who died and rose just to show off his power. He is not just a savior who died and rose to redeem you. He is a king, and kings need a kingdom. And if you take away his kingdom, you're taking away his kingship, which means you take away his glory, you take away his dominion, you take away his right to do anything by the authority of God. A king must have a kingdom. What's his kingdom? Say it out loud. It's his church. How many kingdoms does he need? Oh, I'm not talking again until you answer. One. One. How many kingdoms does he have? One. Thank you. His church, his kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, unlike all those. Previously mentioned in Daniel 2, which again connects the two prophecies. Not necessarily linking them one after the other, but thematically shows the connection. His dominion is everlasting. No one's ever going to come up with more authority to depose him, as was the case in the darkest times of the Roman Empire, from their perspective. It's a pretty good time for us, but for their perspective, dark times. He'll never be deposed. He'll never be replaced. His authority will never run out. He'll never abdicate. 
He's just going to keep being a king forever. Why? Because he's going to keep living forever. They tried killing him once. It didn't work. It's not going to work twice. So they're not going to try anymore. His spiritual kingdom. His spiritual home for us. Verse 15. He sees all this. And my Bible says he was grieved. What's your Bible say? Hmm? Anxious. Did your Bible say anxious? Distressed. Distressed. All right. Two ways to look at it. And they're not necessarily contradictory. They kind of overlap. First of all, the man has just taken in a lot. And we'll see repeatedly in the prophecies of Daniel, they take a physical toll when they when he experiences them. It's not like just watching a movie. And even if you watch a really good movie, you know, you get emotional if it's a sad movie, right? Imagine that where you take in half a millennia's worth of history and you experience it in kind of a way that none of us have ever done so because he wasn't just dreaming. He had visions in the night, visions instead of just happy dreams. It takes a physical toll on him. Now, remember, later he's going to have some of these. He's going to be 90 years old. He's going to be an old, old man having these intense visions. So it, it has a physical toll. But there's also an emotional toll. It made him anxious. It made him, what did you say? Anxious. anxious. Someone else had a different word. I don't remember. Distressed. Distressed, yeah. Distressed, anxious. It made him worried. Why? Well, we just read verse 13 and 14. That's great stuff. But verse 13 and 14 is all the way over here. Here's all these evil nations. Here's all this turmoil and disruption. Here's all this hardship. And he's going to get more specific with the hardship as he goes on. There's a lot that's going to happen before then. The message of Daniel is, yes, you're in exile because God wanted you there. You're going to get out of exile because God will want you to get out of exile. But that doesn't mean when you get out of exile that it's going to be just sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. When you get out of exile, it's going to be hard because wicked people are still going to exist. And you're going to have hardships. But the same God who got you out of exile is still God and will take care of you. That's the overall message. But when you hear that message, you know, built into that message is that nagging thought, it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. The Bible never says the life is easy. It's worth it. Not easy. If it wasn't easy, it wouldn't be worth it. It'd be nothing to be worth Verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved, distressed, anxious in my spirit. In the midst of my body and the visions of my head troubled me. He's agitated, perplexed. Uh, well, my Bible says grieved. Same idea. Not just, not just sad. Just he feels the weight of everything he's just seen. Verse 16, keep the thought going. I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. Now, keep in mind, we're still in the vision. I came near to one of them that stood by. We had the son being taken to the father. They brought him to him. Who's the they? The heavenly host, the angels. So the angels of them, Daniel asked. He went to one of them that stood by and said, tell me the truth of all this. Not just this great triumphant king being coronated, but these beast after beast after beast. Tell me the truth of all this. So he told me and he made me known the interpretation of the things. Verse 17. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings. Pause. That doesn't mean, see, let's say Tiberius was a king. Call him Caesar, Kaiser, same thing, king. Caligula was a king. Claudius was a king. Nero, Galba, Vitellius, these were kings. But they all wore the same proverbial crown. They were all the king of Rome. So this is one king. King and kingdom and kingship are all interchangeable in prophetic metaphorical language. So 
I mean, otherwise, otherwise, you're pulling a thread that completely unravels the whole thing because it, it contradicts itself. The only explanation for four kings is four kingdoms. It's just one is used to stand in for the other. So four beasts are four kingdoms, we'll say, which shall arise out of the earth. Next verse. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever, even forever and ever. King James, again, verse 18. The saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom. Your Bible says what? Receive. Receive the kingdom? All right. Basically, everybody else is the same, same idea? Yeah. Hmm? Possess. Possess, yeah. Possess, receive, take. All right. Two possibilities. All right. And once again, it's one of those things. The path diverges, but we're going to end up at the same place. But let's consider the two possibilities. Possibility A, it's about conquest. Possibility B, it's about coronation. Because we've already had both of those pictures be described for us. The fourth beast conquered. The king coronated Christ. So it could be one of those two, and we're looking at the picture of that. We're either getting a picture of the destruction of Rome and the conquest of the persecutor of God's people. That's really the point. Or we're getting a picture of the coronation of the king, both of which we've already talked about, one of which is being referenced here. If it is the conquest one, then it's saying that we're going to defeat this kingdom and we're going to take it over. We're going to have it for ourselves. Why would he put it in that term? Well, because if you're describing victory, which is what we're talking about here, we're not talking about a kingdom just being destroyed. We're talking about a kingdom being taken over, a kingdom being uh, conquered, not just defeated, but consumed. And that's the most total and complete form of military victory. These all kinds of these military campaigns that you can read about in the Old Testament or just in history, rarely, rarely ever were about completely obliterating genocide, destroy, there's not a trace of them left. It was almost always, we want the land, we want the resources, we want the people, so we'll defeat the government and we'll take over the, the rest. That's a complete conquest. Now, you've got to put that idea in a spiritual connotation. When God is going to completely destroy Rome, in my thought process, as I'm reading this back then, I know what completely destroy a kingdom means. It means conquer and consume. So Daniel could be, if it's the interpretation A, taking that metaphor and saying, Jesus is going to so completely consume and defeat the fourth empire that we're all going to be victorious over it. And as we'll say in a little bit, everybody's going to serve this king, which literally isn't the case. Lots of people are not serving Jesus. But when you're describing victory, it's, it's written in those terms because that's what it looks like, complete victory. Or option B, it's the coronation. The king will have a kingdom. A kingdom is comprised of subjects of the king, which we are, so we get to possess this kingdom which will never end, which will last forever and ever. Either his defeat of the enemy lasts forever or our victory with Jesus lasts forever. I'm not sure which one he means, but it ends in victory either way. Okay? Verse 19. Then Daniel says, okay, thank you for that explanation. Now I would like to know the truth of the fourth beast. The one that was diverse from all the others, that was dreadful, whose teeth were of iron, his nails were of brass, who devoured and broke in pieces and stomped out the residue with his feet. Tell me about that guy in particular, that thing in particular. Verse 20. And tell me about the ten horns that were in his head, because one of them came up separate from them, the little horn we talked about, and before whom three fell, even that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. That's a new description. We didn't have that earlier. So here's, tell me about this little horn that came up. You have these ten horns and this little horn whose structure, whose form, whose look out of him was more stout. Not word you would use when you call something little. Little doesn't always mean little. All right? So tell me about that horn. 21. 
I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Is the little horn Titus? Could be. Titus completely attacked God's people. I mean, God's people, from Daniel's perspective, are the Israelite nation, the, the Judean people. So from that vantage point, Titus certainly made war with God's people. But I think the little horn is Vespasian. Either way, Vespasian certainly persecuted. I mean, Titus, A.D. 70, the year 70, Titus marches in there on his white horse, and he burns Jerusalem to the ground. He's the future Caesar. He's the future emperor. But he wasn't the emperor when he did that. He was the son of the emperor. So, yeah, this guy did a lot of evil things, but at this guy's behest. So, it's splitting hairs. This guy did evil, but this guy did it because he told him to, or because he told him to. So, the little horn is the one who does this great evil against God's people, his set-apart ones. He made war with them and even prevailed against them. Because he did. I mean, slaughtered and defeated and conquered as Judah was multiple times in their history. Until, verse 22, the Ancient of Days came. And we're going to look at this from the Jewish perspective and then look at it from how it played out in history. This creature came and made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given, given to the saints of the Most High. And at the time came the saints possessed the kingdom. So, here is from the Jewish perspective. If I'm a Jew in exile, a Judean in exile, reading this, here's what I'm hearing, okay? I'm hearing this idea that I'm in exile right now. But there's going to be a lot of political and geopolitical upheaval. And ultimately, God has promised I'm going to get out of exile. And I'm going to find myself under the boot of this really oppressive, wicked fourth beast. All right? So far, that's history. And they're going to prevail and defeat us. But God is going to defeat this fourth beast. And after defeating it, God is going to set up his kingdom. And we're going to be in that kingdom and it will never be defeated. Now, if I am a Jew reading that in the 500s BC, what I'm thinking is my old kingdom in Jerusalem was defeated by Babylon. I'm going to get to go back to Jerusalem and it will I'll be in a kingdom on earth that Jesus, the Messiah, that's what they're thinking, the Messiah will come and he will reign in that kingdom on earth and he will conquer all my enemies and I will get to have you know, just grapes fed to me from cushioned chairs forevermore. I will just have peace and prosperity on earth. I will have all these worldly things and all this worldly pleasure. And I will get to laugh in the face of all my conquered foes. That's what the Jew is thinking. Then along comes this carpenter's son dude from the north, as far as they're concerned, from Galilee. And he comes in there with his crazy ideas and his crazy concepts and his crazy teachings like, if they strike you in the first cheek, turn the other cheek to them. Give them your coat too. Love your enemies. Be good to them that hate you. I'm not going to let them, I'm not going to let my people, my people abuse you. I'm going to drive up the money changers, the Jews who are persecuting you through their nefarious ways. But I'm going to tell you to be good and respectful to Rome, to mind the Caesar. And in fact, I'm going to be arrested by the Roman government. I mean, the Jews had help, but officially... The Romans going to have me, and I'm not going to fight them back. I'm going to go willingly on the night they arrest me. I'm going to say, put down your swords. This does not sound like the revolutionary that I was promised. This does not sound like total victory that I was assured would come. You're telling me it's not going to be, it's not even a physical kingdom? My kingdom is not of this world? Completely blew their minds. No wonder they killed him. They couldn't fathom anything he was teaching. No wonder they thought he was a false teacher. Because they had completely warped their idea of what they thought God wanted them to be. 
to the point where it was a purely worldly thing. That God's army was of this world, that God's war was of this world, that God's king was of this world, that God's victory was of this world. And Daniel and the other prophets, that's, that is the vernacular they had to work with. And so when they write the Messianic prophecies, they write in those terms. Isaiah describes Jesus as this conquering hero who has so slaughtered his enemies, blood is all over his clothes. And we say, why are your clothes all red? Please tell me you've been stomping grapes. And the Messiah will say, oh, I've been stomping in the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored. I've been smashing my enemies' heads until their blood is all over my clothes. That's your Messiah as Isaiah paints him. And the same Isaiah wrote him as a suffering servant. And they could not fathom the two things. And they so quickly latched on to him, their Messiah, as this conquering monster that they said, well, the, the suffering servant, that must be us, not the Messiah. We must be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And our Savior, the Messiah King to come, he's the one with the sword that's all bloody. And he's got his clothes all covered in the blood of our enemies. But we're the suffering servant, which is just stupid because the suffering servant suffers silently. And there's no way Israel at any point in their history ever suffered silently. They complained when things were good. They certainly weren't complaining when things were bad. So they had such a completely skewed and misunderstood and warped sense of who they were, who God wanted them to be, and who the Messiah would be. That no wonder they completely misunderstood these sort of prophecies. So they're reading it from that perspective. Rome, they don't know it's Rome, but this fourth beast is going to be attacking us and persecuting us. Then will come our Savior, and he will slaughter Rome. What happened in reality? The Jews get here. Rome starts oppressing them. Then comes the Messiah, and he offers them salvation. He offers them this idea of, well, they may kill me, but I have something better. I, I, can, I can be killed, and it won't matter. Because the Jews right now have the mentality of, I need someone who will stop me from being killed by my enemy. Please save me and keep me in this life. The Messiah will do that. He'll come in with this big sword, like Braveheart, and he'll ride in on his horse. He'll start chopping heads off, and he'll save me from dying. And the real Messiah says, I'm going to save you so that you'll be okay with dying. I'm going to save you, and you'll have such a new perspective that as they're marching you off to the guillotine, the ones behind you are going to be saying, go, hurry up, I'm next. And they can't fathom that. I'll get there. I have more to say about that next week. I have a whole rant that I wrote. <laughs> that wasn't it. <laughs> but you see the difference. You see what they wanted, physical war, physical slaughter, physical conquest, and what they got, all of that but spiritual. Our kingdom is not of this world, and our fight isn't either, Ephesians 10. We wrestle with principalities against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So take on the whole armor of God, not of Rome, not of Judah Maccabee. Take on the armor of God so you can rest against the evil one and stand in the evil day. Anywho, we'll pick it up there, verse 22, 23 or so next week. Thanks, you guys.